break from Acts. Um, and by the divine sovereignty and, and timing of God, actually, um, when we get back into Acts, we're going to be going into Acts 19, which, if you've looked ahead or even read the heading, is Paul establishing the church in Ephesus. Um, so today, if, if you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, um, we're going to be starting in verse 3 through 14 and, and making it as, as far as we can today. Um, this is just, this is a, a almost praise worship song from Paul on what God has done for us to the church in Ephesus, which he established. Um, and and kind of, well, he, he got there in Acts 19 at least. And so um, let's read the Word of God, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word, given us your word to, to show us the amazing grace you've given us, and that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you made us alive. Father, I pray that today as we read your word that you would reveal it to us. Help us to understand the depths of your love, the depths of the, the riches of your mercy and grace that you have lavished upon us in Christ. Help us to truly see our depravity and so we can better see how great your mercy is. Help us to see where we stood versus where we are now by your love and grace and by the work of Christ on the cross and by the regeneration of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to see what your word says and to let it encourage us to go and make disciples of all nations, to let it encourage us to persevere. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you see right off, off the bat, he says, he says, blessed be the God and Father. Um, the word blessed be, you see it a couple times, different times in Scripture. Um, notable is, is 2 Corinthians 1, same wording. Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction, right? Holman translates this passage, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him. Why? He gives a laundry list of reasons why, right? And so I believe that that, that blessed be, what he's saying is, is this should incite you to praise God, to bless him, to praise him, to, to worship him because this is what he has done for you. And with that being said, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. They didn't, Paul didn't split it up. Um, our English version split it up, but Paul is, is just 
going off here about the amazing things that God has done for us. He doesn't stop even to to give a breath. He just continues on going one sentence and says, these are the amazing things that God has blessed us with in the beloved. Here's all of the riches of his mercy that he has bestowed upon us in love. And so he starts off, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a really weird sentence if, if we don't have the Trinity, because we have the, almost the first reason, I'd say, of why we should praise God, which is because he's God. But then he goes on and also says he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you look at the Greek there, you have God, Theos, right? Lord, Kyrios. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you look at like Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, right? The hero Israel, the, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, right? In the Septuagint, that's translated hero Israel, the Kyrios is Theos, the Kyrios is one, right? So this, this God is our Lord and he is one, right? We have the Trinity, Right? We have both the Father and the Son in equal unison being one God in two distinct persons. And that's why Jesus in, in John 10, verse 30, is able to say the Father and I are one. We're, we're one God working together, two distinct persons. And this is the, the, what we kind of see throughout this whole passage is Paul laying out what the different persons of the Trinity have done in our salvation. He doesn't attribute it only to God the Father. He doesn't attribute it only to Christ. He doesn't attribute it only to the Holy Spirit. We see all three persons of the Trinity in co-equal union saving the people of God. Saving God's elect, his chosen. So, I mean, just right there you see in in verse 3 that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see in verse 4, he chose us in him. Um, You see in verse 5 that the Father predestined us for adoption to himself. Um, You see in in verse 6, he favored us. And, And you see Christ as the avenue of all these blessings. You don't see us getting any of these blessings that the Father has given us apart from the work of Christ. He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Um, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, he blessed us in the Beloved. Every time we get a blessing from the Father, it's through Christ. In verse 7, you see us being redeemed through his blood. And then you have the Holy Spirit coming in there. And not to take away from the fact that we know from tons of other scripture that the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates, who imputes the righteousness to us. But Paul here specifically points out the fact there in in verse 12 and... um, sorry, 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit seals us, right? Seals our redemption so that we have no doubt about it that God who started a work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So we have a completely triune redemption. And I mean, that's the first reason we should worship God is, is that he is God. He's, he's the Trinity. He, he lives in a co-equal union within himself. 
So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These passages only make sense if we first understand our depravity. If we, if we look at these passages through this avenue or, or idea as if we deserve any of this, then these passages are not going to be a blessing. It's just going to be like, oh, well, obviously I got that. Yeah, I deserved it, right? But if we look at these passages knowing that we are sinners, knowing we've fallen short of the glory of God in every conceivable way, we deserve nothing but the wrath of God, and now we see right here that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How is it possible? How is it possible that the righteous God, who Exodus 34, 7 says, will by no means clear the guilty, has now blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Because it's not of ourselves. It's not of ourselves. It says, in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He blessed us in Christ by Christ's completed work on the cross because Christ did what man could never do when he bore our sins, was pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. And so God, by the work of Christ on the cross, by that completed work, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which brings up two questions, which is, which is why and how. And we've kind of gotten to the why, which is Christ, and then this next verse gets us to the how. Of, of And it also, I would, I would say, even tells us what these blessings are. I'd say verses 4 through 14 are both how we got these blessings and what these blessings are that we have received. And so verse 4, you see that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, that, that first word, ESV, translates even as. Um, it's, it's an adverbial causal. It answers the question of why, right? Because, I, I mean, you read that first verse with a true understanding of our depravity, and the first question that comes to mind is why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would God bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And so we see that Paul is starting to answer that question there in verse 4, even as... He chose us. He chose us is an interesting Greek word. Um, it's past tense, it's middle voice, and it's indicative, right? So past tense, which the, the passage explains for itself in that he did it before the foundation of the world, right? Before we were yet born, done anything good or bad, as Romans 9 says, God had already chosen us in him. He knew we would fall. He knew we would sin against him. He knew we would be complete re completely rebellious, and yet he still, by his own good pleasure, chose us in him. The middle voice here is what's super important because it gives us the reason why he chose us, which is done by and for himself. That's, that's what the middle voice means. Is it's the, the subject of the sentence is doing it by and for himself. And so God being rich in mercy, but to his own glory, right? Everything that God does is done to his own glory. If uh, you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31.
this passage bears a lot of relevance in God doing, choosing us for his own glory and, and why he chose us. Look what it says. It says in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Actually, sorry, let's go out to first, verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As we read that passage, and the questions come up, did God choose us? Because we were high up, because we were worthy? No, it says God chose what is low. Did God choose us because, because we, were, we were loved by other people? No, it says God chose what is despised. Did God choose us because we were something? No, it says God chose what was nothing. God chose what was low and despised and nothing. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in his presence. God has taken us from our lowly estate, from being in utter rebellion to him, from as we see throughout John 10 and as you look through Ephesians 2, right? Us literally hating everything about God and worshiping everything that is contrary to him and by his own choosing, because of his good pleasure, he has brought us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God the Father. And so we look back at Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us. He chose us. He did it all before the foundation of the world. It's also indicative, meaning that it can't be changed. It's done. It's set, it's set in stone. It was already chosen. It was already put into place. There is nothing that anyone can do to change that because God is sovereign and he has made a choice. We see later in this passage that he had that divine counsel, right? He has finished the work. And therefore, there is nothing that can be done to change that. It is past tense. It's indicative. It's complete. So why did he choose us? It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The means is Christ, and the end is holiness. And so as we saw in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31, God chose what is insignificant, despised, what is viewed as nothing, and made us holy and blameless in his sight. I mean, we all know the passages, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, right? Isaiah 64.6, 6, our, our works are as, as filthy rags, as none righteous, no, not one, in Romans 3.10. Yet in the sight of God, we're holy and blameless. In the sight of God, us who are sinners are holy and blameless, not by our own righteousness, not by anything we've done, but because he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, with a view to make us holy and blameless before him. Right? Colossians 3.3, when it says, you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Therefore, when God sees someone who is holy and blameless, it's not because they themselves have done anything to merit that. 
but because Christ himself has merited it, merited it on the cross. He has chosen what is despised, forsaken, and made them holy and blameless in his sight, in his sight made them something to put to nothing things that are, to take all the, the highest kings who know not God and make them terrified by Christ who is set on Zion. So we go on. Not only did he choose us in him and, and, and make us holy and blameless before him, but right there it says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is a, a quick quote from the, our confession, the London Baptist Confession, 1689, chapter 3, paragraph 6. It says, The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, or like main occupation, the, effect, the certainty of their effectual main occupation, be assured of their eternal election, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reference, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So first things first, when we speak of God choosing us in him before the foundation of the world, when we speak of this doctrine of predestination, the first thing it should make us do is say, am I his? Right? And the London Baptist Confession says that's done by looking at our, our main occupation. What, what, is, what does your life look like? What do you spend your time doing? Is your time spent worshiping God? Is your time spent reading the scriptures? Is your time spent seeking to serve the God that saved you? Because if, if God has taken you and changed you, then you know for sure that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world predestined for adoption to himself. And if we find ourselves to pass the test of, of 1 John, to, to be able to examine ourselves like 2 Corinthians 13 says, and we, we, we look at these, these the scriptures and we compare ourselves to the scriptures, right? And we find that we match the attributes of a Christian and we repent when we sin and we seek all the more every day to worship God. And although we may stumble, we rise again. And if we see ourselves to look as the scriptures say a Christian should look, as 1 Peter 1.10, it says, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make every effort. Confirm it. And if we find ourselves to, to do that, then as the, the 1689 says, it says, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God just as Paul says here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has predestined us. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Praise him for these things. He deserves the admiration because when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with himself. And it also gives us great assurance we have, we have great assurance in the doctrine of, of predestination, of being chosen before the foundation of the world, in that God has completed the work. God, before the foundation of the world, 
has already decided what's going to happen, and therefore, if we are walking in the way of Christ, we have great assurance that there is nothing that can happen that can take us from such a blessing. There is not a single thing that Satan can do, that men can do, and even we can do, because God will keep us, and His Spirit will keep us walking on the path. And that's if you, if you go on reading chapter 3 of the 1689 on, on perseverance of the saints, it speaks on how the Holy Spirit, by His work of regeneration in us, keeps us walking in the way of the Lord so that we will have that assurance. And it gives us a abundant consolation, the 1689 says, in that the end has been declared from the beginning. We have a sure hope in the heavens. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And then it says he, he predestined us for adoption. Predestined us for adoption as sons. 1 John 3, 1, it says, look, how gr- look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. We are. Why? Why are we God's children? Because Christ is God's. And to understand the immense impact of, of what is happening here when we, we speak of being predestined for adoption to himself as sons through the work of Christ, I think it, I think it bears a lot of relevance to look back at the story of Abraham you don't have to turn there, but it's Genesis 22 if you want. But what you see is God commanding Abraham to take his son, his, his beloved son, his only son, the son whom he loves, bring him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him for my sake. Right? And Abraham, in faith, does it. And then, as Abraham's sitting there about to sacrifice his son, an angel of the Lord, I would argue Christ, provides a lamb. Provides, provides a ram as a, as a substitute offering so that Isaac now does not have to die. God provides the sacrifice, right? And so Abraham names Mount Horeb, God will provide. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see that, that Old Testament picture come to reality when God sends his only begotten son, the son whom he loves, down to the world to live a sinless life and to die for our sins, to take the penalty no man could bear, being fully God and fully man. The, the commonly well-known passage, for God so loved the world. That's the love of, of God. As 1 John 3, 1 says, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and, and we are through Christ and through Christ alone. Because God has provided the sacrifice, Christ has made the sacrifice. And all of this, verse 5 says, is done according to the purpose of His will. The, if, if you just look through this passage and if you have ESV or any, any translation, you'll see how many times the word he shows up. Him, himself, right? He chose us according to the purpose of his will. He has blessed us. He has lavished upon us. His purpose, he set forth. The purpose of him, his will, his glory, right? Who's, who's the actor here? Who's, who's the sole mover in our salvation? Him, God. 
And, and we see this, too, in stark contrast. If you flip one page over, Ephesians 2. How's Ephesians 2 start? You. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, or by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy, made us alive together with him. But we see that stark contrast between Ephesians 1 that shows the complete work of God, and it's him, himself, he, he's done it, he's completed it. And you see in Ephesians 2, you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the air. You look at the story of the prodigal son. Think about it. Was that man worthy? Did he have any worthiness in himself to come back to his father, to come to his father? He had been off eating the the pig's food, participating in everything that was a complete abomination to his father. And yet when he comes, his father accepts him, not because he is worthy. Don't make that mistake. He did not accept him because he was worthy, but because the Father was loving and gracious. And because it pleased him to accept him. It was all according to the purpose of his will. That, that word ESV translates purpose. The, the Greek is good pleasure. His, his good pleasure. You see in, in Luke 2.14, says, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. To those whom he favors. Same Greek word there, to to those whom he has pleasure upon. And so, we must ask the questions. I think that this, this, this passage brings up the same questions that Paul addresses in Romans 9. The questions that Romans 9 addresses, which is, why did God love Jacob? Why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? Why did God raise up the Pharaoh for destruction? And we see here it was his his good pleasure. It was his good pleasure to do so because God decided before the beginning of time that this is how he was going to work and no one can change God. But I think that the most important question there to look at is not why Pharaoh or why Jacob or why Esau, but why me? Why was it within the good pleasure of God to choose me who just like the prodigal son had been wallowing with the pigs, right, and participating in things that were complete abominations to God, why did God, by his good pleasure, choose me to make him holy and blameless in his sight? I don't think that's a question we could ever answer, besides that it's the Lord's pleasure to do so. According to the purpose of his will, and, I mean, the best answer we'll get there is verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. If you look at uh, Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 23, you can turn there if you want. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name which you profaned among the nations where you went, I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you profaned among them, 
the nations will know that I am Yahweh, the declaration of the Lord God, when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. What is the end? What is the, what is the end goal? The goal is the glorification of God. Um, you, you, you talk to any catechized kid, right? Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory, right? For his own glory. Westminster says the same. What is the chief end of man? To glorify him and enjoy him, to glorify God, sorry, and, and enjoy him forever. You see the same thing in Psalm 23, that popular song, song, psalm, that the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths. Why? He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. For him. For his glory. So that he will be glorified. So God has chosen us. He's predestined us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. First John 4.10, it says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is only one way we can receive the grace that we have been given. Not by anything we can do, not by anything we've done, but in the beloved. In God's beloved Son. That's why, that's why Romans 8.32, it says, will God not freely give us all things? If Christ has died, will God not freely give us all things? Because God spared not his only Son, but poured his wrath out on his only Son for our sake. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians is able to say that whether Paulo or Apollos, all things are yours. For you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And God is the ruler of all. And if you're a child of God, then all things are yours. And then he goes on, Paul, to basically answer the question again of how does this happen? How, do, how have we been blessed in the beloved? In verse 7, because we have redemption through Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We see in Acts 20, verse 28, it says that Christ has purchased the church with his blood. Uh, you see the same thing in Ephesians 5, right? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her holy and blameless before himself. And we know through Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22 says so. And in Ezekiel 18.20, it says that the person who sins shall die. The person who sins shall die. God requires blood. God requires the death of the man who sins because God is just. And Exodus 34.7 says God will by no means clear the guilty. So the only way we can be saved is having redemption through his blood. Redemption through his blood, just as 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, Christ became sin for us, so that in him, we might, in him we might become the righteousness of God. And truly, what greater surety is there of salvation than the very blood of Christ? 
Because if God was willing to shed his son's blood for you, what greater surety do you have of salvation? If God was willing to not spare his only begotten son, but offered him up as a sacrifice, will he not graciously give you all things? Will he not complete the work he began in you? You better be sure that, that not one drop of Christ's blood will go to waste. There is not a single drop of Christ's blood that will go to waste. When Christ died on the cross and said, to tell us die, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. He purchased redemption for every single one of the believing ones. For every single one of God's chosen. He purchased complete redemption for us. So Romans 8 can say, what can separate us from the love of God? In Christ Jesus our Lord. For Christ has died. And if God has poured out his wrath on his son, he will not pour out his wrath on us as well. If Christ has died in our stead, we don't have to die as well. Because Christ has purchased by his merit eternal life for those who believe. Christ has purchased by his blood eternal salvation for those whom the Father chose and gave to him as that gracious gift, whom the Holy Spirit imputes that righteousness and regenerates. And not only do we have redemption through his blood, but we have forgiveness of our trespasses. God cannot pronounce a person forgiven without the death of Christ. It's almost as if Paul here is like beating a dead horse, but he's going back to the same thing over and over, which is that Christ is worthy, that God is worthy to be praised, that the Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised because they have completed a complete redemption. God has finished the work. He's given us redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and God the Son, being fully God, fully man, purchased that forgiveness on the cross. The same verse goes on to say, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It's too abundant to comprehend, really, when, when we speak of that word riches there. The, the riches of his grace, it's far beyond anything we could ever fathom and really, until we stand face to face with God, I don't think we ever will. Because those, those riches, I mean, you see Paul's prayer later on in Ephesians when he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every blessing on heaven and earth is named. He says, I, I, I pray that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and length and breadth and width of the love of God. Try to comprehend it. I, I, I pray that you could comprehend such a marvelous thing because there is so much richness to God's grace. And with all that in mind, if you would turn back with me to Psalm 115. It says, 
Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us, he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel, he will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will, praise the, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And you see that psalm, I think it sums up this first part of Ephesians 1 super well. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We don't worship a God who is like the idols. We don't worship a God who has hands but can't feel, feet but can't walk, and nose but can't smell. We worship a God who sits in the heavens and does what he pleases. And it was his good pleasure to work redemption in his people from before the foundation of the world. And therefore, we have the sure hope that you who fear the Lord... Trust in the Lord. He's your help and your shield. Because he sits in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. And therefore, if he has been willing to not spare his only begotten son, but give him up as a ransom, if he has predestined, chosen, called, if he has made you holy and blameless in his sight, he will protect you, and he will bring that work to completion. So praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that although we deserve nothing of, of what you've done for us, that you have purchased a complete redemption for us that you have made us holy and blameless in your sight, that you have done something we could never do. Father, help us to constantly seek to glorify you in every way, knowing that you have made us your children. You've adopted us. Help us, Lord, to take this and, and to praise you with it, to turn our doctrine into praise, knowing that you alone deserve glory that you are God and there is no other, and that you will protect us and keep us until the day of salvation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.